This episode of Make Your Pitch is brought to you by BET. As a business owner, have you ever asked, uh, how is my business ensuring profitability and sustainability? Uh, or does my business drive its growth and agenda through a defined strategy? Maybe also, is there a performance management system in place? If you hesitated to answer any of these questions, you need to take a look at the Business Enabling Toolbox, BET. To find out more about BET, check the show notes of this episode. This is Make Your Pitch. I'm Christopher Knight. And I am Ellen J. Harris. Together, we chat with entrepreneurs with great ideas, looking for investors to back their vision. We want to be sure investors are there as well as to find the next big hit. So let's get started. Ready to start? Hello, everyone. It is wonderful to have you here today for this episode of Make Your Pitch. Uh, each time we bring you an episode, we bring you all new ideas, new directions, new things to think about as you are either a, an entrepreneur or you, as an investor, they're looking for folks that you want to invest in and help them uh, prove their dreams as a reality. But today we're taking a little different direction. We're going to help out all of our folks who are uh, up and coming with their business and take a deep dive into the area of uh, patents and uh, also in, uh, partially into trademarks as well. Why do we do that? Because we know that most of the time as you're a startup business, uh, oftentimes you don't think about your intellectual, protecting your intellectual property. And that's because you are, you know, you're, you're too busy in the process of developing your company, but you're also maybe have some other situations that don't lead you that way to start with. But we're here to tell you that it's extremely important if you're going to develop that business and grow those investors to have your IP or intellectual property protected. I'm Christopher Knight. And I am Ellen J. Harris. And uh, Ellen is going to tell us a little bit about our, our guest, Robert Cantrell. Thank you, Christopher. And you are in for a treat with our guest today. Robert Cantrell is a registered patent agent and innovation consultant with experience as an inventor, an intellectual property strategist, and a leader of patent research and analysis teams. He supports inventors from the inception of ideas to the drafting, filing, and prosecution of patent applications, which taps into his own experience as an inventor in retail on more than 150 patent applications in drones, store robotics, data management, artificial intelligence, blockchain, packaging, and transaction security. He has an extensive uh, work portfolio in innovation sciences, which allows him to look horizontally across many technology disciplines to raise the quality and quantity of inventions produced by innovation teams. I think it's exciting, don't you, Christopher? Oh, I do, as a matter of fact. And uh... Robert uh, and we, you and I, have had a chance to talk to Robert on several occasions, so we know exactly what you're about to experience. So for now, Robert, 
welcome to make your pitch. It's a uh, ball is in your court. All right. Well, thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you for that introduction. So um, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to dive in with having um, for your listeners think about patents in a little bit of a different way than you, you may usually do it. So I'm going to present um, five different perspectives on how to look at patents. Right. And the start is the one I think most people use and think about patents most of the time is legal perspective. The patent as a way to protect your intellectual property. Um, and, and the patent can do that, but, uh, but you know, even a perspective on this perspective, I'll, I'll start with that. Because I've often when I talk about patents as I'm doing now, I'll, I'll refer to them as, uh, I'll use an analogy of a castle. You know, you think of a patent as a, as a castle, right? And a castle is an, an instrument that was used in ancient times to, to claim a piece of real estate. And of course, with a patent, you're claiming a piece of intellectual property real estate. Um, and the thing to think about with a patent as protection is that just like with a castle, there's almost no such thing as an impregnable castle and just the same may, way maybe with a patent. I've worked with teams that have worked with companies that have put a number, a lot of resources into, into, um, into dealing with the validity of a patent and addressing the validity of a patent uh, and have been very successful at, at, at dealing with that. And actually, um, so what a patent is doing for you in the innovation space, you really need to think is that it's, it's in a sense slowing down somebody who might not have your best interest in mind. Um, it, you want to, with a patent, create an, a, a situation where somebody who may be a competitor, for example, would, um, would prefer to work with you on your terms rather than try to go around or try to invalidate your, um, your filing. So now, four other perspectives you may not have thought about as much. Right? Um, the first of these would be a marketing perspective. Okay? Now, another thing that a patent can do for your business is it can... Um, help to focus and align your, your platform. So for example, if you're, if you're working on a product that's oriented on safety, um, it can make a lot of sense and build a lot of credibility and authority if you also have patent filings that are associated specifically with that platform you're trying to create. You know, it could be safety, for example, it could be durability, it could be something that just makes the product exciting. So if your patent portfolio is reinforcing that message, your patent can become a marketing tool. Um, another thing is that your, uh, your patent will have a, a sales perspective. Um, and this is something I often work on with inventors. I'll ask what I call the, uh, um, you know, the who's cares question. The inventor will come up with an invention um, and, and you know, feel that the, you know, the market's going to be interested just on the context of the invention as, as, uh, on its own. But I often we'll call that the, the mousetrap fallacy, the idea that if you build a better mousetrap, people will you know, come knocking on your door. I think there's a more eloquent way to say that. But uh, inventors find that that's very rarely true. So, so the inventing and the patent is often the first part of that uh, process because ultimately the invention has to be sold. But now this is where sales and marketing come together because being able to stamp patent pending on your invention uh, it can be one you know, great way to give it a little bit more sales push. People will feel uh, there'll be a perspective that a patent that it, or a, an invention that is patent pending is somehow of a better quality of one that's not. 
And that's often true because then you look at the next perspective, which would be what we'd call the, um, the focus or engineering perspective, okay? Because there's a discipline that is undertaken in a patent to create something that is new, useful, and non-obvious. You know, three criteria that are needed in order to get invention through the patent office. And just the exercise of going through that process can help you to conceive and design better products, which ideally will then be more saleable products, especially if you've maybe perhaps brought some salespeople into the process as well to say, well, what are customers asking for out there that you can make? And then you know, that can align with your platform and then you're building a legal protection. So all these things connect together in a more of a holistic fashion. And then you're building a legal protection that has some real substance aligned with your business. Now there's another perspective uh, with the patents and the patents is the, is the financial perspective. Because okay? what you're doing with a patent, of course, is you're creating an asset. So not only will an investor want the practical aspects of a system that's focused, uh, a system that's saleable, that's being patented, that fits the marketing platform of the enterprise and provides those legal protections. Uh, but that asset is also recourse, right? Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of startups don't, things don't go as planned. That's just a reality life. And, and investors, um, you know, sometimes what's left when all is said and done is that patent. Um, but if the patent covered a topic going through these other processes that was already valuable, um, it can still be an enormously valuable asset and allow an investor to recover considerable funds and, and on occasion, perhaps even, uh, even go beyond. A lot of businesses are developed specifically to build patents to license. That is what's being sold. Um, and so, and then where do we, get to on all these to, to, to be able to use these perspectives uh, with delibera deliberation in business is to um, you know, take advantage of inventions that are based on inspiration, but really look at inventing as being a process and looking at inventing systems. So that um, going back to that example, if you're business was oriented around safety or a product that had you know, features oriented around safety, you could very systematically look at common principles of invention and technology evolution to see what applies. You can lay out the system like an engineer and you can with great deliberation start putting new patentable inventions around that core idea and system that you may be building as a part of your business. But that's the overview. <laughs> You're doing great. Keep rocking, uh, Robert. You're digging down deeper and deeper. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I could go in, in, in so many different directions with these. I mean, this was, uh, um, you know, my, my experience, I came into the world of, um, as a patent practitioner, originally through solution sales. I, uh, after I got out of the army, I, uh, I joined a, out, uh, an affiliate of IBM called Rome Telecommunications. Um, and as a part of my training, I went to the IBM sales school, you know, which was still, we're still at the tail end of, uh, I guess maybe the older school of, of sales. Um, 
you know, the way it was done, putting on the shoes and, and you know, canvassing uh, buildings and looking at what the telephone systems they had and how it was going to link with computers. But what I learned there was the art of, and science of solution sales, um, because part of the IBM advantage was being able to take the equipment that they had, you know, and teaching the people that were involved to really build solutions unique to businesses. And it's very commonplace now to do that. But, uh, you know, when IBM, this IBM sales school was founded and so many companies built their uh, sales programs around that original idea, it was, it was, it was newer. But um, solution sales ultimately led me to working for a company that was in the innovation space that led me to be an innovation consultant, which is where I learned from various parties um, about inventing as a system. Okay, um, you know that you could um, you could with great deliberation um, look at a particular area and and invent into it um, you know, pretty much as much into whatever depth that you wanted. And so, and I taught this for fifteen years. All right. And um, and sometimes people say that, you know, those who, uh, you know, those who who can do do those who can't do teach or something. So, so I always yeah, I, I was a, an innovation teacher with three patents. So I was OK, what kind of credibility is that? Right. You know, and, um, and I had that for for a long period of time. But then I was picked up by Walmart's technology group to be an innovation coach as well. But we had a little bit of a miscommunication in there, which was you know, on our first day because I, I wasn't 100% sure what they wanted me to do. And my boss, a guy named Don High, sent me a, um, an invention disclosure in, in an area or a search report, it's a patent search report. And it, basically his instructions were do something with this. Okay? And so this is, I think this was day two. Um, so I was flying from uh, where I reside in the Washington DC area uh, down to Bentonville. And, um, and I just sketched out 34 ideas. Um, and what I did is I took my inventing coaching system and I just turned it on myself. I said, okay, you know, I don't have any inventors to work with, I'll just do it on myself. So I, of the 34, I thought that was a little excessive. Because again, when you work at this as a system, your productivity can be real high. Uh, so I cut it down in half, submitted 17 of those. Um, and then 12 of those became filed patent applications, I think to date, 10 of those are granted. Um, and so Walmart's technology group at that point said, you know, skip the coaching, you know, go straight to inventing. Um, and so my numbers now at 148 filed, but most of those were done within my first two years. Uh, because at that time, I was very focused on uh, inventing and helping to build that patent portfolio before I was then recruited by the, um, the legal group to help build a licensing function and, um, and then ultimately do, to be doing patent agent work as, as a practitioner. So, um, uh, but, uh, but so this became an opportunity for the teacher to get out on the field um, and, and just further reinforced um, you know, my belief in these systems, you know, I've worked with the systems at, uh, you know, Hewlett Packard was one of the companies I've, I worked with, uh, American Medical Systems with my uh, partner in the legal field. Now we, we did some work there and, and, and several other companies, but, 
but now the, the challenge with an inventive system you know, that we've encountered is that the productivity can quickly outstrip a patent budget um, because uh, a system can raise that productivity an order of magnitude. You know, a company that's doing 10 a year suddenly has 100 good inventions a year. And, and, um, and so, uh, so also a part of this process becomes ways to economize, let the investment in, um, in the inventions that, you know, that come to light, uh, grow with the business. Um, and, uh, and then also sometimes there's some internal marketing that needs to be done. And that's where going back to the very first part of this discussion, uh, helping companies understand that there's a lot more value to be had from a patent than just legal protection. You know, and that even looking at a patent as being defensive may not be entirely the right way to look at it, because really a patent is a way to, to again say we are claiming this space. You know, if you want to come into this space, you need to deal with us. Okay, there's a, a defensive side of that, but there's a very assertive side to that as well. Um, but but using that, the the marketing values that can be had from it, the sales values that can be had from it. Um, whether you're a large company or entrepreneur, just the authority of having your name on a patent, which is really telling the world reads that, um, you know, this individual has some authority in this particular area uh, because they have enough knowledge in the area to be granted a patent on something that is new, useful, and non-obvious. Um, and so, uh, so when all these values are brought into account, um, sometimes that original patent budget can look very light, um, you know, and it, and it becomes a little bit easier to justify doing a little bit more. Wow. Okay. Um, I have several questions. <laughs> I'm okay. just going to try to step through them one by one, but before I do that, um, Christopher, what's on your mind? Well, you know, the first thing that occurs to me is uh, for our, the folks who are listening to this podcast, uh, many of them are startup businesses, and uh, you have a number of startup businesses. I know, uh, Robert, that come to you, and you have to have a discussion with them. Uh, if I came to you and I say, here's what I have, here's what I'm doing, how would you... Uh, guide me in understanding whether I have something that is patentable or not? Um, well, it's, there's two things I'm doing. And the first, just getting to the core of your question, whether it's patentable or not, there's a legal standards in the USPTO publishes their uh, MPEP, which is, uh, is a manual uh, for, well, it's a manual for patent examiners and practitioners, but it's, uh, it spells out very specifically, and anybody can look this up and, and read what the USPTO defines as something novel, i.e. You know, it's new to the world, uh, something that is useful. Now, it doesn't have to be the most useful, but it just has to be, you have some utility, okay? Uh, and then you've got this gray area, which is usually where I spend most of my time working with inventors, is this, the non-obvious uh, context because it's a gray area, it's a subjective area. And I call it the, 
the wheels on suitcases areas. You know, people, uh, the first person who comes up with an idea to put wheels on a suitcase uh, risked having an examiner say, well, of course you could put wheels on a suitcase. That's obvious. But, you know, then, you know, the question comes in, well, why did it take so long? Right. <laughs> for somebody to, okay. So, so oftentimes in my patent prosecution work, um, I'm writing arguments to help inventors get inventions through to show why something they came up with really had an inventive step to it that was non-obvious. Okay. And in that case, you know, we're talking about persuasive arts in that case, you know, it's you're taking talents and things learned from sales and marketing and applying it to, uh, um, you know, to, to patents to, to really help um, the parties that be understand why something is, um, is truly unique. And, uh, and then the second thing, um, especially working with individuals. So a lot of my career has been spent working with big companies. So with big companies often come big budgets. Uh, with a big company, we could look at an area of technology, say this is important to us and blanket it with 20 patents, all right? And, uh, and that's a little prohibitive for a, uh, a startup you know, entrepreneur. That would be the whole budget and then some, okay? Um, so we have to look at it a little bit of a, of a different approach. And, and so there, in a sense, I'll reverse engineer the inventing um, and, and help, um, help the inventor, first off, scope out the entirety of what their invention could be, but then go back into uh, how I write the patent to make sure that we have uh, hyper-detailed specifications uh, that give lots of avenues to go as you're going through the patent office and dealing with rejections and objections that, that inevitably will come up. In a sense, you almost want to have some rejections and objections because if, if you don't get any, you might question whether you covered everything a little bit too narrowly. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but the idea is to, to allow the original core patent to grow with the business because there's something in the patent field called uh, continuations and continuations in part, which really are ways to build um, new patent applications off of an original patent application filing. So when, when you file, you typically file a provisional, what's called a provisional patent application which may describe several inventions. And you have a year to convert that into what's called the non-provisional, where you're limited to one invention per non-provisional. So I've had provisionals where multiple patents have been written off of the same provisional. It's a, it's a common practice, but it's a way also for an entrepreneur to invest some money to get that initial filing and the initial filing date then spend a year testing the market, seeing what kind of investment can come in, and then allowing those additional potential filings to grow with that investment and proof of success. And now carrying that forward you know, two, three years, when that first patent is granting, uh, then there's a three-month window between when the USPTO says you know, your patent is granted and when it issues. Now you can write yet another you know, continuation or continuation in part. What a continuation part means that you're adding new material. You know, maybe you've, you've evolved the technology further in three years. So you have half old, half new, or, you know, for example. But, uh, but you keep the 
that you keep the patent and that original core idea alive um, and you allow it to flower in a sense, blossom and branch off, ideally with the investment that's coming into the business. And, and so, uh, and by doing that um, and leaving those avenues open, then it's more difficult for a large company to design around, to invalidate, um, you know, to, to leapfrog you know, a singular invention, which a lot of entrepreneurs will, will bank themselves on just one single invention that kind of sits out there on its own, uh, you know, like that isolated castle. Um, but having avenues to grow um, helps create that scenario where a big company will prefer to work on the terms of the, um, you know, that entrepreneur, you know, than, than trying alternatives. And, and that's, and so that's, you know, with, with the, with the entrepreneur, that's really, I mean, that's a really good way to look at a patent, you know, not, not to depend on it to necessarily stop anything. So again, I've worked on these patent hunter killer teams. The hit ratio is really high, but to create something that is hard enough and difficult enough to deal with and valuable enough that it just becomes everybody's interest. Because another side of it too, is that if a small entrepreneur wants to be acquired, uh, well, in that case, it then all of a sudden becomes um, in the interest of a large company to also keep that patent valid because that's one of the assets they want to try to bring in. Let's pause for a moment so we can hear from our sponsor for this episode. I have just set up our customer relation management system using CRM Engine, not just for its many options, but because its price is well below that of the big boys. The CRM Engine team set up all that we needed to keep track of our contacts, including those who are scheduled to pitch, our investors, and strategic partners. We now know when we met, what was said, when to follow up, and includes an auto email system to stay in touch timely. It keeps us focused on what makes Maker Pitch what it is, the people. So to learn how to keep your business in touch with your clients using CRM Engine, go to the show notes of this episode. So are you so, saying too that uh, in the process, it, uh, I, you, you mentioned earlier something very interesting. Sometimes you develop something and patent it only and not even develop out the process necessarily, but uh, do the patent in order for it to be licensed. Uh, mm -hmm. give, us, give me an example of that. Uh, an example of a of license? Well, you'll, you'll find a lot of those, uh, you know, they're taking place in the drone space where I, um, you know, where I, mm -hmm. I came from, right? There's lots of small startups. And, and so there's an ongoing discussion with those startups as to, you know, do we want to be acquired, have the small company acquired, or do we simply just want to license you know, the technology that we're, you know, that, that, you know, we're working on, you know, given, given the player. And, and so, and it's nice to develop a, a company, you know, but, uh, but once you're developing a, any kind, like a drone company, you've got logistics, you've got to deal with, you've got command and control, you've got to deal with, you've got the FAA that you got to deal with. So, um, so taking it as far as might be to prove the concept, uh, maybe as far as an entrepreneur wants to go, uh, and and then there becomes a a really good play to sell products, but also the licenses that are associated with the patents. Because mm -hmm. most of these companies, I mean, 
a drone is basically a, a flying smartphone with propellers. I mean, it's a lot of the technology <laughs> is the, the same. And, and so, and, um, and those who are familiar with the patent business know that there was uh, quite a bit of turmoil in the system um, as companies got their positions uh, sorted out in the, um, you know, in the smartphone space. Mm-hmm. Lots of lawsuits, lots of litigation. Oh, not pleasant, especially yeah. for a small company. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. And, and, and you do have to answer your question because a lot of licensing is driven, you know, based on, uh, on litigation, you know, too, okay. you know, the assertions. And, and so even sometimes that's a, there's a, a deliberation in that as well, because, um, uh, you know, if, if the company doesn't want to license on a carrot perspective, you know, they may have to on the stick perspective. What, one last question before I move on with my wonderful and talented co-host. Uh, you have you mentioned systems based on process. What do you mean by that? Um, so, uh, so, so an example. All right, um, two examples. You know, first is, is what I call inventive principles, that there are limited sets of inventive principles. So I'll give you an example of, of a system. It's not the only system, but it's one that's in the public domain so people can look it up. Um, it's, uh, it's an acronym, it's called TRIZ, it's acronym T-R-I-Z, and it comes from, uh, from Russia. And it's a theory of inventive um, problem solving, right? It's a translation. And so this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but, uh, but it's, a fundamental core of this system is that all inventions are a, combina- are a combination of one of 40 inventive principles to solve one or a combination of 39 problems, okay? Um, and that what you're doing is you're mixing and matching these different portfolios and when looked at, or principles, and when looked at in this perspective, inventing can be like a musician uh, hopping on a, on a piano, all right? So whether it's, uh, you're looking at uh, Beethoven or the latest hip hop, it's all using the same notes from the same scales in the Western scales. And, and, this, uh, you know, and there are other scales, of course, um, but it's just this limitless combination of the same notes. You know, so one inventive principle I often talk about is, um, is that if you remember the old flip phone smartphones and, and the laptop computer, all right, and the seats on a movie theater or the folding wings on an airplane, all right, uh, and I could go on, but they're all working off of the same inventive principle that I have something that's gonna be open and large when I'm using it and closed and small when I'm not using it, okay? And so, um, so you, you'll see this idea. So you, you, if you just start walking around after you listen to this program, you'll just look around, you'll find a whole bunch of times that this principle is used. Um, so if you start to know and, and embrace these uh, principles, um, then it becomes very easy to cross innovate uh, across platforms because you start to look at solutions in different silos as really being, again, being combinations of the same things. So just like you know, looking at music of being you know, rock and roll, hip hop, classical, you know, they're all in their own silos, but you see the same patterns, same notes, same chords being used in all of them. Okay. Um, so, so that's one thing is that is using these, um, these principles to be systematic. Then the other thing is to say, well, where are you aiming at? Um, and that's where uh, common paths of technology evolution can come in. 
And here again, you see universal patterns repeated time and again. So a common one that everybody pretty much carries with them all time is that is that smartphone. You know, because one of the things that technology will tend to do is it'll tend to go from a mechanical uh, example of the technology to an electrical example of the technology to a virtual. And so, and you see that with a smartphone, okay? I mean, clocks used to be mechanical and then you had your electric clocks and it was the new thing. Um, but now they're, they're virtual, you know, it's basically software, right? And, and you just count the number of inventions that are on your smartphone that you used to have to buy separately because you can fit virtual things into a lot tighter space. So, you know, and of course there's a little bit of gray, obviously this virtual technology is, has an electrical component to it, but, um, but there's not so many wires and gears as there used to be. <laughs> okay, all right. Now, um, in reading your bio, I discovered something uh, that I really wasn't paying attention to until I really read it. And there is an area that is receiving a lot of attention. Uh, people are jumping into the space. I don't know that they know what they're doing, but they're in it. And that's how it goes here mm -hmm. in the U.S. Okay, yeah. so in the field of cryptocurrency, you have the Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but you also have an up-and-coming um, ledger called mm -hmm. Ethereum. Okay. I discovered last night that there is an I in the word Ethereum. Mm -hmm. It's, <laughs> it's uh, from overseas. I'm not sure which country, but my question to you is this. Um, is it, it's built on the ledger, which gives it that locked in perspective that once it's in, you cannot change it, which personally, I like that, okay? You can put a lot of things in that and not have it change. My question is, is that technology patentable? One, two, mm -hmm. if someone goes into that field on the Ethereum side of the equation, is what they do trademarkable? And the last question is, is um, if a small startup is thinking about going into the space, what are some, some of the things that small company needs to know in order to establish a solid foundation that demonstrates that they've done their homework, they've done the research, and they know what they're doing? That's a big question. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I can answer it in a straightforward way here. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, today and, and laws change. Uh, I mean, blockchain has a soft, or you know, certainly a software component to it. Um, but uh, but blockchain patents are being granted. You know, if they're written the the proper way, and um, and when thinking about what it's doing you know, whether it's Ethereum or any of the other things aside, but fundamentally what a blockchain is doing is it's physicalizing a virtual instrument. Um, you know, it's a way that you can take, uh, you know, let's suppose you're an artist, okay? Um, it's a way as an artist, you could decide just like you might with a series of prints, say, I'm going to do one, 10, 20, 
copies of this digital artwork, you know, I'll sign it electronically or something if I want to. And that's, uh, and that's another, you know, but, and then, and then we're done and that's it. But, it, but uh, you know, one of the things we're seeing is unique artwork, for example. Yes. Uh, blockchain can protect it. Another thing is that um, authors, you know, traditionally, once a copy of a book, for example, has gone electronic, kind of like music, it's been very hard to, to control. It's too easy to copy. Okay? But now a, an author of a, an electronic book could put a blockchain you know, attached to copies of the book and, and in a sense, print virtually, you know, 100 copies and that's it. You know, or print another copy and, and, and there's ways to, um, so a number of these different ideas, you know, show up in my own, um, you know, patents that have published that are in this particular area. So, and as far as trademark, I mean, that's independent of the technology. I mean, you're, you're trademarking a business that's being built around this idea. You know, so I'm a, uh, um, you know, I've got an equity position in one company that is in the blockchain uh, art space. And so, and, and, and the trademarks are being put together on that, but they're independent of the technology. They are dependent on what the business is going to be. Um, and it is very much based on the idea of putting a, a blockchain around unique artworks. Okay. And then, um, and then as far as the, let me make sure I got your last question, the uh, foundational, what was the last part of your question? Um, it has to do with, uh, if you're going to enter that field, yeah. um, I guess what I'm really asking you is what kind of reading material, there's only two uh, um, entities, if you will, that publish extensively around um, Ethereum, what it means with the tokens and the coins and that kind of thing. And um, I had an opportunity to work in Europe with a startup in Norway. And so I learned the structure of how they uh, put together their smart contracts and mm -hmm. with, with the, seed, with the uh, coins produce seeds and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but now that it's reached the United States, and Americans are really, I hear the terms that are being thrown around and I'm listening and I'm saying, they don't really understand the concept because for me, it's all built on computer science. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the structure of it is all computer science. I hear so much of what I learned in, in, in the discipline. And so I'm, I guess what I'm looking for is, is there a lot, there's a lot of authors, some are more complex than others, but is there something that you would recommend that we could recommend to our audience? Because when they come to make your pitch, we're looking at them and we see potential. But to be honest with you, for me, they're not ready for it. They're still trying to figure out which way they're going with, with a, a, a tangible uh, uh, small business. And I'm not trying to be mean, but... I don't want to steer them down an incorrect path. So I guess what I'm asking is, what, what could I read? Well, here, here's, a, I mean, my greatest source on, on this of information here is a business partner in this company. I mean, so there's, okay. and so, so finding individuals that really know this space and in your space, uh, I think can be highly productive. Um, but, um, 
But to answer your question in a slightly oblique way, but, but not entirely, is how I deal with those types of problems with a patent. So the first thing that I'm asking with any particular startup is what's the purpose? And the anchor of that purpose is, uh, always seems, goes down to what am I trying to physicalize that's in the digital world, okay? And then when I'm describing that function, I'm using language that is not dependent upon one blockchain source, one blockchain method, because those are changing all the time and, and things that are coming into favor are going out of favor. Uh, you know, and, and, and reasons can be, be different. Somebody will come up with a new blockchain method that doesn't use as much computer power to generate uh, as, as the next one. So there's an energy savings, there's a, a computer productivity savings. So, um, so you may have a technical superior solution, but, but along with that then comes the social ad adoption. And you can find in the blockchain, the same type of things that happened to the old you know, VHS for beta, you know, date myself here, cassette, uh, video cassettes, where the, you know, the best one doesn't necessarily make it because the other one was adopted you know sooner or more generally so um so so it's a, it's a it's a moving target um so you know a technologist needs to develop you know their solution with a system that works but then protect the intellectual property um so that it covers a plethora of systems that could work and that might be coming down the road in the future. And, and so and that's just how we're wording the uh, patent application very much around the concept okay. versus any one specific, like a, you know, Ethereum, for example, as you mentioned. Okay, that's very helpful. Good. That's really very helpful. Thank you for that. Christopher? And we've come from the old world to the new world now. Yes. <laughs> and covering all that space is uh, uh, exhaustive work. So uh, we are coming to the close of this particular episode of Make Your Pitch. So I'd like to uh, uh, ask you, Robert, do you have anything you'd like to say that uh, to the inventors are even investors out there, as far as uh, your hints on how to protect themselves and what to do properly, uh, even timing wise, you know, sometimes the timing is, is off. Somebody uh, has the same thought you do, all that kind of stuff, you know? Um, so there's a, a couple of things. And one of these is first very practical, but it comes up all the time. Okay. Um, and it's, it's making sure that what you're talking about with your technology stays patentable. Uh, from a legal perspective, and this revolves around the um, the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement. Okay, <clears throat> and so, uh, so if you're working with a technology that that you might want to patent, um, you want to do one of two things. The best thing to do is to have a provisional patent application filed on that technology as soon as possible. That's the best way to protect it. Now. There's lots of reasons why people may not do that. Uh, sometimes the technology needs further development. Uh, of course, you know, people sometimes may truly be working on a shoestring, uh, you know, budget. And um, but uh, but this means that um, whenever you're talking to an outside party, 
absolutely do it under an NDA. And don't look at the NDA with anyone you're talking about as being an issue of trust. You know, don't you know, be working with a friend who's outside your business who wants to hear about the technology and friend says, uh, you can trust me and you probably can. But that's not the issue. It's a legal issue because once you've uh, disclosed that technology, it is a disclosure. In the United right. States, you'll have a year with which, to, uh, you know, from that disclosure to file um, a patent application before it comes to statutory bar. And the rest of the world, um, once it's disclosed, it's disclosed and you, uh, you burn your rights. And so, yeah. so you absolutely want to have that NDA. And, and if anybody comes back to you with that trust argument, say, look, it's not about trust. I trust you. This is a legal requirement. Okay. Um, but then the, the second thing with the NDA is don't over, um, uh, don't expect too much from it. As a typical NDA agreement is going to say that it doesn't include uh, things that the other party already knew about or were working on. Okay. It's really hard to prove what the other party already knew or was working on. Okay. Um, that's just a reality. And so, uh, so the safer thing is to get that technology put into a provisional patent application. We sometimes work with inventors that uh, you know, they come to us and you know, their meeting is that next day or at times that afternoon. And, and so uh, that's a little bit of a short leash, but we can turn something around on a day or so, you know, or even in several hours, if there's a white paper or something that's been produced or the like, we can call what's due as a cover sheet provisional. Um, which is just doing your best shot of having as much as you can in that initial one because uh, you don't in a provisional even have to write claims, right? But, but it gives you that added degree of protection and a filing date, okay? Um, so that's the one thing. And then the other thing, which is, um, is something that um, inventing, going back to the music analogy, um, Inventing is kind of like music writing versus music playing. Okay, they're two different talents. And there are some people that have a talent in both. They can play music really well and they can write music people want to hear. Um, that's rare. There's a lot of musicians out there that play really well, but they need songwriters. Okay, and a lot of songwriters out there. They can write great music, but they're really not that good at a keyboard, for example, or something like that. All right. Um, and um, and so uh, so with inventing, um, you know, you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a technologist. You, you have to, you know, if you've got that innovative gene, for lack of a better term, the talent, what have you, um, you can be an inventor. Uh, you, you don't have to know coding to do a software invention. You need to be able to produce a flow chart and some diagrams that you could give to a coder that could look at that and say, okay, yeah. I can code that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so be very widespread about where you're getting your ideas from. Uh, and um, because uh, anybody can be an inventor. Um, and often in my innovation workshops, I will request that the engineers and technologists I work with invite a salesperson in, okay? invite a salesperson that, you know, has shown a little bit more interest or something, you know, their creative solutions are out there, bring them into the inventive discussions and, and you'll be surprised at the ideas 
that can come out of doing something like that, you know, and, and then once you get on the ideas on the table, then you can work on the engineering, you know, and the patent aspects behind that. You know, that's the best news I've ever heard because, you know, I'd, I would love to be brought in by somebody that's uh, an inventor and I'll just follow along and, uh, and uh, ride on the coattails. That'd be just fine <laughs> with me. Uh, Ellen, uh, we are wrapping up. So anything you'd like to say briefly to close out? Okay. Thank you so much, Robert. This, you made it well worth the wait. And I appreciate your time and your, your insight. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ellen. Thank you, now, Christopher. Now, this, this has been outstanding. And for those of you who are listening, and not only uh, uh, on the live at replay as we have it out there, and remember our podcast on Maker Pitch are put up every Thursday. So follow us uh, as you have been and hit the subscribe button. And hit the like button so that other people know about us because our audience is growing because of you and because of wonderful people with great skills like Robert Cantrell, who's just given us a very, very deep dive and some great understanding on you, your business, your invention, and your patent and process. Thanks so much, Robert. My appreciation and Ellen's for your wonderful work today. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you again, Ellen. Thank you again, Christopher. Very much enjoyed being here. And uh, as we close, we always like to say, make your pitch. I'll see all of you next Thursday. If you enjoyed today's episode of Make Your Pitch, go smash the subscription button. And if you want, leave us a five-star review. If you think you have what it takes to be on one of our episodes, contact us by going to the show notes to learn how. But most of all, be with us again next week for another episode of Make Your Pitch.